So welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today. This is John Murphy. It's my pleasure to welcome to this podcast Dr. Frederick Schoen. Dr. Schoen is a professor of pathology and health sciences and technology at the Harvard Medical School. And he's also the executive vice chairman, Department of Pathology at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Dr. Schoen, welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today. Thank you. Wonderful to be here. So you just delivered a lecture uh, summarizing much of your pioneering work in heart valve replacement and regeneration. Perhaps we could begin this discussion by asking you to do a very brief synopsis of your work. So we've been involved in trying to understand and potentially solve a number of the significant problems with heart valve replacement over the years. This is a procedure that started over half a century ago in 1960, when aortic valves and mitral valves began to be replaced by mechanical prostheses. The results were not wonderful at that time, but they were far better than the seriousness of an untreated underlying valve disease. So even from the beginning, even though we had imperfect medical devices with which to replace removed heart valves, it continued as a clinical entity, despite the fact that there was more to be done. We've had the opportunity over the years to develop new materials, for example, pyrolytic carbon, which was a very hard, solid, synthetic substance that began to be used in mechanical heart valves in approximately the early 1970s, and has become the material of choice for mechanical valve prostheses. We've also been very heavily involved in the other major type of substitute heart valve, which is the biological heart valve, or they're often called bioprostheses, which is animal tissues, either a pig heart valve, usually, or a cow parietal pericardium, which is the outside sac outside the heart. And either of these tissues is treated with glutaraldehyde, which is a bifunctional aldehyde chemical that changes the heart valve structure in the same way chemically as tanning changes animal skin to form leather. And it turns out that those biological prostheses have actually performed reasonably well. The major problems associated with both types of artificial heart valves are thrombosis or clotting associated with the mechanical valves. Sometimes the clots break off and they travel systemically around the body as what we call thromboemboli. And these processes of clot formation and the breaking off is inhibited by the patients receiving anticoagulation drugs systemically. These anticoagulation drugs, an example is Coumadin, also known as warfarin, are drugs that actually lead to some vulnerability to hemorrhage or bleeding in these patients, so we would rather not use it. Fortunately, the bioprosthetic valves don't require anticoagulation, but they seem to be plagued by a problem of calcification and tearing owing to tissue degeneration. Over the years, we've been very involved in trying to understand 
And once we understood to a large degree the calcification process, we were able to develop methodologies and tissue treatments that inhibited the calcification process. So over the last 15 years or so, surgeons have begun to use tissue heart valves very, very extensively. In fact, the percentage of substitute heart valves around the world has gone from about 50% tissue and 50% mechanical approximately 10 years ago to now about 80% tissue heart valves and much lesser mechanical. Once that seems to be demonstrating, uh, demonstrated that these treated tissue heart valves, treated with anti-calcification, agents that were developed based on the principles of why calcification occurred, they seem to be having much better longevity in the patients, and that has contributed now to even further increased usage of those kinds of products. Two other things that are very, very exciting, one of which is actually used clinically and its impact is growing, are valves that are actually implanted through a catheter rather than through an open-chested operation, which is what uh, conventional heart valve replacement requires. Catheter-based valves have been used for approximately a decade, but their usage is growing, particularly in older, frail individuals who probably are not healthy enough to undergo the major open-chested operation that heart valve replacement usually requires. I believe that if we can work on and potentially demonstrate a longer-term durability of the catheter-based valve replacements, they will continue to not only be used in high-risk patients, but will actually begin to encompass some of the market of the more conventional types of valve prostheses. The other major area, which is very exciting, but unfortunately at present a long way from clinical implementation and some doubt whether it will ever achieve clinical implementation and translation, is the idea of creating a living heart valve. The major excitement over creating a living heart valve is that potentially you could have a valve that would grow with a patient, and particularly a younger patient, Pediatric patients with valvular heart disease now or complex congenital abnormalities that require an artificial valve have a lot of trouble because none of the conventional valve prostheses will grow with the patient, and that is a major limitation to the effectiveness of these kinds of procedures in children. I seem to recall from your lecture you also mentioned there's some very limited application of the cadaver-derived heart valves? Yes, for a number of years, probably now 30, 35 years, there has been some interest in taking valves, much like a transplantation of an organ, like a liver or a kidney or a heart, from a cadaver, treating these with antibiotics to make sure they're sterile, and then cryopreserving them, meaning freezing them at very, very low temperatures until they're actually needed. The benefit here is that it's, it's natural tissue, but the cells of the heart valve actually do not survive the handling and the freezing, so that although it's very tempting to think that these valves might be alive at the time that they're implanted, in fact, it's not actually true. So this represents a few percent of all the valves that are being done. Their outcomes are very, very similar to those of conventional mechanical and bioprosthetic and other tissue valves. So... There's multiple valves in the heart. Is there a particular valve replacement 
that's more adaptable to some particular technology versus another? Well, all of the mechanical and tissue valve prostheses can be used in any of the positions of the heart. The aortic valve is the one most frequently diseased and therefore most frequently replaced, and the conventional valves are suitable for those, although there are the limitations that I described. I think catheter-based valve replacement is certainly more amenable to the aortic position, and it's also amenable, actually, catheter-based valves are amenable to replacing the pulmonary valve, which is necessary in some children with congenital heart disease. The pulmonary valve operation is done through the venous system. The aortic valve is most easily replaced through the arterial system. There is some work underway now to try and produce catheter-based replacement of the mitral valve, which is much more difficult because you either have to go through the aortic valve, which can potentially lead to damage, or you need to approach the mitral valve from the the right side of the heart, the venous side, coming through the right atrium and right ventricle and actually puncturing the interatrial septum, which has its own set of problems associated with it. So I think for a time, it's going to be limited to primarily the aortic and the pulmonary valves. You mentioned a moment ago about the living heart valves. I assume you mean what we've discussed in this podcast and with other investigators, essentially a tissue engineering approach. Is that what you had in mind? Yes. A living heart valve is probably, should it be possible, will require tissue engineering approaches, such as taking a porous polymeric scaffold, seeding it with cells, and growing the tissue in vitro in a bioreactor prior to implantation, and then ultimately implanting a construct of cells, matrix, and valve that's been created on the bench. Some other kinds of approaches that are being considered, which are probably also rather difficult, are the possibility of implanting a polymeric valve, basically, but one which would have the characteristics of attracting cells, and those cells would remodel a resorbable scaffold matrix. So you would actually build the valve from within. It's a very exciting principle, but we're a long way from implementing that. In addition, some are taking animal valves, decellularizing them, and either implanting them as is, or adding cells in vitro and then planting the cell-coated matrix. Those are having some degree of success, but as yet there's really no indication that seeding with cells either creates a living valve or that those cells that they are seeding are having any beneficial effect. It's kind of interesting. I hadn't thought about this, but a lot of tissue engineering relies on biological scaffolds that, for example, wound healing, where the recreation of new tissue occurs over a period of time. I presume from the moment you implant a heart valve, it has to be a fully functional device. It has to be a mature valve when you ask it to start doing its work. So absolutely, the heart beats 40 million times a year, about once a second, and you have to have a functional valve from time zero, even if that valve is designed to be remodeled over time. So one of the additional challenges potentially of using a 
resorbable, remodelable polymeric matrix that you might implant as is would be that that polymer would have to have all of the mechanical properties of a natural valve and retain those properties almost exactly as it were remodeled and turned into tissue. So you mentioned the heart beats 40 million times a year. I recall in times past visiting laboratories where some of these technologies were being evaluated. And uh, I was impressed by the fact that test a, a candidate valve, you have to, it seems to be the bare minimum of millions of cycles to even get a handle on its applicability. Yes, in fact, there are many stages during the validation of new heart valves and their regulatory certification, producing the data for regulatory certification. And one of them is clearly what we call pulse acceleration, which is running those heart valves through many, many cycles of the equivalent to what would happen in the heart. And it's generally done at an accelerated rate because if you want to mimic two years, you've certainly got to do it in less than two years' time. Uh, In fact, one of the major limitations now to further development and translation in heart valve replacement is the idea that we have valve prostheses that in many people will last 15, 20 years or more. We know that. We can predict that. So in order to come up with something new, you either have to demonstrate that it is better longevity-wise than what exists or has some other principle that now becomes uh, advantageous. And the example for the tissue-engineered valve is this aspect of growth so that for a child, you would benefit by having a valve that would grow with the child, even if that valve only lasted five years, potentially, because you might save that child, some of the multiple operations that are required year after year, often when a child has congenital heart disease that needs to be repaired very early, because growth may intervene and essentially ruin any kind of replacement that you've had before. So it seems from your observations that perhaps the two frontiers are this uh, living valve approach and the other seems to be the catheter inserted valves. Are there any other innovations on the horizon that potential patients might expect to see in the next, say, five years? One of the areas that I'm excited about, which is not yet ready for prime time, is the aspect of the possibility of actually doing valve repairs through a catheter. Mm -hmm. So that there are several different types of valve diseases that are actually amenable to repairs rather than replacement. That is to say, removing a little tissue or doing a little plastic surgery inside of the body to make the valve more functional. They literally, the tissue loosens up and they don't hold back the flow of blood like they should and prevent regurgitation of blood. So sometimes removing some of that tissue and basically taking a tuck actually helps, and that's done as an open procedure sometimes. Sometimes putting a purse string literally around a valve can actually take a tuck. And what we need to learn how to do is create surgical instruments that can actually perform through a catheter, which is a very exciting possibility. And I believe as we get into more robotic kinds of surgery, we will be able to do those kinds of procedures. And just the general trend toward minimally invasive, I think, will go further and further. 
although it's hard to say what will be the next main advance in that regard. I suppose also one other thing that's very exciting, one other aspect of this is that the study of trying to create a tissue-engineered valve has actually given us a lot more information about how valves form and stay healthy and may actually give us more information as time goes on as to why valves become diseased. And these principles may actually be turned into preventive therapies and potentially even easier ways to treat valve disease than replacing the valve. In terms of your comments about repairing valves and give it a tuck and so forth, uh, I'm not sure why I think of this analogy, but I think about essentially LASIK surgery for the eye. Is that a reasonable analogy? Well, I think it is, and I think it's probably a reasonable analogy to think about some of the cosmetic plastic surgery that we do. Mm -hmm. As we age, many of our tissues will essentially loosen up and stretch. And much like what plastic surgeons do in facelifts or tummy tucks, or whatever may actually be applied to those tissues inside our bodies that actually stretch and become dysfunctional. So Dr. Schoen, first of all, thank you for coming and sharing your work. You've certainly been recognized around the world for your pioneering efforts over many, many years. And this uh, synopsis you provided for our listeners, I think is very helpful in terms of having an appreciation of the field in terms of clinically available therapies as well as what might be on the horizon. We will post on the podcast website a link to Dr. Schoen's website for those who want more information. And I remind our listeners you can reach us at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. And I'd like to thank the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine that sponsors this podcast series. Thank you for listening. <music>